Hello, friends, and welcome to the Epic Human Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Blair, coming at you from San Francisco, California. On today's episode, I'll be interviewing Claire Coder, CEO and founder of AntFlow, an innovative menstrual product company based in Columbus, Ohio. My wife, Tave, is from Ohio, and every time we visit her family, I go out into the entrepreneurial ecosystem in the area, Columbus, Cleveland, Cincinnati, and Pittsburgh, just to get a pulse on what, what people are working on and what's going on in those areas. I continue to be impressed with the entrepreneurs I meet in areas outside of the Silicon Valley bubble, and Claire is no exception. Claire is a born hustler. That was my impression when I first met her, and it has been confirmed after doing this podcast. In this episode, you'll learn what inspired Claire to drop out of college and follow her entrepreneurial instincts and dreams. You'll learn about the challenges she met along the way and how she overcame them. And you'll learn a few life hacks, a few tips and tricks from someone who learned how to run through walls. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast as much I enjoyed making it. So without further delay, please give it up for an epic human, Claire Coder. Okay, and we are live with Claire Coder. How are you doing today, Claire? Hi, Joe. I'm excited to be here. Awesome, awesome. How are how are uh, things going in Columbus these days? <laughs> well, uh, it is winter and Columbus is cold, uh, but thankfully we're staying warm with our friends and with a very nice warm home right now. Awesome, awesome. Glad glad to hear it. Well, great. Uh, th- again, thanks for being on the podcast. R- really appreciate you coming on. Uh, basically, the, the idea of this podcast is just to hear uh, stories about interesting people, and, uh, and I think you fit that category perfectly. So, uh, But wanted to start with just learning more about, about the origins of Claire Coder. So, so tell us about where you grew up, what you were like as a kid. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess interesting is a decent way to describe me. Uh, (laughs) So I grew up in Toledo, Ohio, which is right on the border of Ohio and Michigan. Um, And I have always been involved in way too many things. Uh, Growing up, I was involved in mock trials, speech and debate. At age 16, I started my first company. I grew that company to employ eight independent distributors along the East Coast. And in a matter of two years, I was actually one of Etsy's number one sellers. Uh, and I was just selling buttons and magnets and compact mm. mirrors and just hustling wow. everything. <laughs> so I just, I grew up in an, in an environment where I needed to be out of the house. I didn't have a great home environment. Uh, I was an only child, but I was the child that was responsible for everything, whether it be uh, minimizing my parents' tumultuous relationship Mm. to uh, cleaning and doing all of the chores. So it was my personal goal to do everything outside of the house. And that really drove me to start my company as well as be very, very involved. So uh, by my senior year of high school, I was running a company that uh, allowed me to purchase my first car and support a variety of other people as well. And it helped me mature really, really quickly. Um, and that is what I did growing up. Wow. <laughs> I was just with a lot of people. Wow. Wow. The, the, uh, the, the stereotypical hustler and a uh, very unique origin story. And, uh, and what was, did you have at that time, did you have any uh, role models at the time? Was there something about uh, a story or a person that you read about uh, in terms of entrepreneurship that you were thinking about? Or was it more just organic, just getting out there and, and wanting to do something? You know, I I really didn't know what entrepreneurship was growing mm-hmm. up. Yeah. Um, my dad did own his own business in a sense. He is a land surveyor, so but he was self-employed. It was a service-based business. Uh, he had no products. He had no employees. It was really just him doing his own thing on his own. So I loved that my dad was always able to create his own schedule and um, work in a it, work remotely, which I loved that. Mm. But I didn't really know what entrepreneurship was. Mm. So for me, it was really just like I 
I love selling things. I love getting people excited. I love creating my own hours. I mean, <laughs> I don't know if I really do create my own hours because now I'm a, a CEO and everybody creates my own hours for me. <laughs> right, right. Um, I loved all of the ideas that went into what an entrepreneur an entrepreneur is, but I never really had that model or understanding of what owning a business is because I never had that role model in my life. Got it. Got it. Yeah, it's interesting. It it seems like it, it was a quite organic process to to get to to get there um, and to get where you are today. Um, and and the comment you say about other people managing your time, the the quote I I love about entrepreneurship is, a lot of people get into entrepreneurship because they don't want a boss, uh, and then as an entrepreneur you realize that everybody else, everybody you deal with is kind of like your boss, even when <laughs> so true. your customers, your suppliers, your employees. Um, but, uh, but, but there, there's definitely appeal. So, so, so walk us through the, uh, how you wrapped up that business or how you came to finish up that business. Uh, and then where you went after, after that. Yeah. So, uh, my senior year of high school and, like many other high schoolers, I was asked, you know, where are you going to college? Right. And it was that assumptive question of where are you going to college, not what are you doing after high school that just fed into this uh, system that we've created um, in that when I was in high school, I believed the only way to be successful was to go to college. Now, in reality, college probably wasn't the next step for me. I knew I wanted to start my own company and my senior year of high school, I missed 150 days of school mm. <laughs> um, just from running my own company, running around the community. Meanwhile, I still had a 4.0. I graduated 16th in my class, but I didn't learn in the classroom. I learned mm. in the community and I learned by doing things. So uh, right after high school, I, I graduated and I went to The Ohio State University uh, which is how I ended up in Columbus, Ohio. I was following that path that my parents and my community told me was correct. Mm. Uh, and by going to Ohio State, I actually had to let go of my button company because at the time I was still hand pressing all of these badges and uh, <laughs> it was becoming uh, such a burden. And OSU requires you to live on campus for two years. Mm -hmm. And I had a roommate and I was pounding out badges at like midnight and my roommate, <laughs> stop that. You can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so I became very spiteful towards the university uh, sure. because I had to let go of the thing that I had created. Uh, and then in addition to that, I just, I wasn't, I did not feel good in the environment that I was in. Uh, when I was growing up, I was surrounded by business professionals. And then when I got to college, the lifestyle was like, get drunk, party, go to class, sometimes do it all again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, I, that really just wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to run another company and I wanted to get back into the community that I loved. So it was my freshman year my first semester at the Ohio State University, and I'm already starting to think, wow, this is not for me. And I started to immerse myself in the community, and I actually found myself at a startup weekend mm -hmm. in Columbus. Uh, are you familiar with startup weekends? I am. I, but just before you get into that, I was just thinking, um, I was just thinking how ironic because <clears throat> your story about how you had to give up your business to go to college because I think any college administrator you talk to, if you ask them about entrepreneurship, they, they will go on and on about how important it is to foster entrepreneurship and how you want to, they want to encourage their students to be entrepreneurs. But lo and behold, the, the very infrastructure and, and the way the, the curriculum is set up, it, it kills in your example, it killed a business that was thriving by a young entrepreneur. So it's, it's, mm -hmm. uh, th that just jumped out at me while, while you were talking. Yeah. It's also so interesting that entrepreneurship classes are taught by, you know, business professors that have never run their own companies. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. <laughs> the college in the setting that I was in. Now that's not true for all colleges. Um, but at the university I was at, it preached entrepreneurship, but 
the systems were not in play to really help students understand what entrepreneurship was and what it means. Um, sure. So yeah, it, it was really ironic now that you say that. <laughs> wow, wow. Okay, so you were at this startup weekend uh, as, a, as a freshman. Yes, and, and basically it's a 54-hour hackathon where everybody comes together and <laughs> you're all just working on new ideas. And on the Friday night when it started, I actually got my period. <laughs> uh, and we were at a location where this, it was a, it was a private company that, was sponsoring the event and mm -hmm. the private company offered free lunch to their employees. They offered, uh, you know, free kayaks for their employees to take out on the river. There was free perfume wow. and lotion and all of these things in the bathroom. But of course there was no tampon. Mm. Um, and here I am Friday night. I am easily one of the youngest people in this, in the crowd because I think the next day was like an Ohio state football game. So everybody else was like, not there. Um, <laughs> right. And I didn't know what to do. And it was at that moment that I decided, well, it, it was at that moment that I really started to reflect on the menstrual product industry and think mm -hmm. about all of the crazy situations in the, how wild the industry is and the, mm -hmm. the fact that we don't feel comfortable talking about menstruation. So we don't know about all of the craziness that goes on in the industry, how we don't know what is in our tampons and pads, how we don't offer them for free in bathrooms, but we do offer free uh, perfume and mouthwash and all of these other benefits. It's just wild to me. And so it was at that point where I decided I was going to create a sustainable solution to fix all of the problems in the menstrual product industry. Very lofty goal, but I knew <laughs> that I wanted to do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so on that Friday night at Startup Weekend, I pitched for that idea. I built a team around the Startup Weekend. We hacked away at it for about 54 hours. And by the end of the weekend, uh, we pitched the idea and I, we ultimately placed second. Um, and that was kind of the beginning of Ant Flow. And now after that weekend, I, I no longer worked with the people that I worked with at the startup weekend, but it was enough of a reason for me to drop out of college. Like this small idea that I had not vetted at all. Sure. <laughs> I was like, it's enough. I'm dropping out of college. <laughs> that was what started the cycle of Ant Flow. Excellent. And, and so t tell me a little bit more about that decision. Was that a, was that a challenging decision for you? How did you feel about it at the time? And then, and then once you, you made that decision and that commitment, how did it feel afterwards? Yeah. You know, I, like I said, I never really thought that college was for me. So mm -hmm. I was constantly looking for an excuse to leave college. Sure. That being said, uh, this was so when I made that decision, it was the winter time of 2015, and I was feeling so lost, uh, and I didn't know how to tell my parents. So I literally just didn't enroll for the next semester. I signed a lease for an apartment in Columbus, and I moved all of my stuff to the apartment in Columbus. So by January 2016, I was like living in Columbus by myself. And when my parents came to get me for winter break in uh, winter break of 2015, uh, they were like, you're ready to come home? And I basically said, you know, I'm not coming home. I'm not going back to college. I'm starting another company. Mm. And I'm talking about menstruation for a living. And of course, all of that was just <laughs> way too much for my parents. To <laughs> um, and so it was at that point, that conversation when reality really started to hit in. And I'll be honest, when growing up, I was, I was pretty privileged. I, my parents always uh, gave me health insurance. When I got my first car, they helped support me with car insurance. They paid for my phone bill, food was paid for. But when I dropped out of college, they said, okay, you're an adult now and you have to figure all of this out. So I went from 100% supported at a university to literally nothing like no health insurance no car insurance like I had to figure all of this out and so January of 2016 um like the first quarter of 2016 was probably one of the hardest part points of my life I'm sure I mean I think that would be hard for any 19 year old 
and and so were you were you surviving off of savings from your your previous business or or did you just kind of have enough to get by before you got the business up and running? You know, so uh, I, I signed a lease for an apartment for $1,200 a month, which, you know, in San Francisco, in New York, that's like nothing. Right. But in Columbus, Ohio, that's really high rent. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and I don't know what I was thinking when I signed that lease. But <laughs> it was a three-bedroom apartment. And so I actually sublet that apartment, which was against the rules on the lease, but whatever. <laughs> I'm gone there now, so don't, you know, <laughs> Uh, Water so under I, the bridge. Sublet, I sublet the apartment. I charged each of the subletters 600 a month. So I ended up living for free. Um, now I had to pay for food and gas and everything else. Um, so I picked up a job at a marketing company uh, mm. and I worked there for about the first uh, four to five months of 2016. And then in addition to that, <laughs> I worked at a variety of restaurants and bars just to like make ends meet and to start saving more money for Aunt Flo. And of course, I had some savings from my previous company, but <laughs> I, I hate to see my bank account, you know, just continually dip. So sure. I, when I think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I was at the bottom. Like I could, could not even think about my business because I was still thinking about how I was going to pay for my food and how I was going to manage this apartment who right. I had people living in that were from Craigslist and who knows their backgrounds. I didn't have time to background check, you know? <laughs> <laughs> wow. um, so it was, uh, it was so tricky to even think about the goals and where I wanted to be. Um, and it wasn't until nearly halfway through the year where I finally was able to pull myself together and start thinking about the company. Mm. Uh, so, so that was really haunting to me because I had dropped out of college. I wasn't really working towards anything. At that point, my parents just thought I was going to be a waitress the rest of my life, which there's not a problem with that. But, you know, I told them I was going to start a company and here I am just, you know, not. Sure. <laughs> uh, so it was, it was, I felt very vulnerable. It sound I could understand why, and I appreciate you sharing this because I think, in general, this part of the story tends to get glossed over when entrepreneurs uh, reach a level of success, and and it tends to be romanticized in that oh I dropped out of college I had no money and and then I hit it big, um, but this in between time of there's a lot of uncertainty there's not a focus on the business because you're focusing on making ends meet and, and providing basic uh, foundational pieces of the Maslow hierarchy. Um, uh, and then hearing things about how you got it to work in terms of living for free and doing life hacking essentially to, to, to make it work. Um, I think that's that's valuable for people to hear um, how how difficult that can be at that point. Because and I guess as a follow up question, did you during those six months did at any point you say, hey, I should I should pack it up, I should go home, or maybe I should go to school? Did you deal with that level of uncertainty? You know, um, for me at that time, I. When I think about that time in my life, I had literally, I was at rock bottom. Like, hmm. I was, I found myself very depressed. I didn't know what to do. Um, but at that point, I had cut all of my options off. I, so I forced myself to succeed. Uh, if I went back to college, for me, that would have been a bigger failure than anything else because I told my parents I was gonna drop out of college and start a company. I told my peers, I told everybody that that's what I wanted to do. Right. And by going back to college for me in that situation, that was a failure. So I had no other option than to force this business into, <laughs> into reality. And so I just did everything I possibly could to make it happen. And whether that be you know waiting tables, not sleeping very much, eating, literally eating ramen every day. I think people joke about eating ramen every day, but I actually ate ramen every day. Uh, <laughs> right. uh, and then like maybe an apple, but <laughs> like only if I could get to Aldi and get some fresh fruit once in a while. Sure. Um, but uh, so 
So well, no, there was no option to go back to college. The business had to succeed and that was my mentality. And that's what I continued to work towards. Yeah, I think that speaks to your your constitution and character because it sounds like to you, it wasn't an option to go home, but to a lot of people that would be, I would say a big option that they would be weighing with every challenge. Um, so so compliments to you for, for making that not an option for yourself to force you to, to, to move forward on the business. So tell me, so, so, so let's pick up where you left off. You're six months into your, your new life as a, as a, as a non-college student. Uh, and, and, and then what happened? Yeah. So during this time too, I think another, another part that made this particularly difficult is I had no community. I had left my college community. I didn't have support from my parents at that point. I didn't know anybody in the greater, greater Columbus community. So I was really just like a wandering nomad trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And really I, I think entrepreneurs don't talk about how important it is to have that entrepreneurial community Mm -hmm. because we share such difficult situations together. And we understand when we say, wow, our inventory is two months late to a layman, that means nothing. But to an entrepreneur, they're like, Oh my God, how are you surviving? You know? (laughs) Um, But I didn't have that community at that time. So um, I was six months into this life of, wandering around. And um, I ultimately just started immersing myself into business networks. I would go to every networking meeting that was free. And if it was a paid networking meeting, I would try to like sneak in um, or contact the person ahead of time and be like, hey, um, can I do some free social media work for you guys if you give me a free ticket or something like that? (laughs) Uh, Because I couldn't pay for a $10 event. Um, And so I continued to do that. I found my community. And about halfway through 2016, I was catching my stride. And at that point, I decided I was going to launch a crowdfunding campaign. Um, Mm -hmm. And at the marketing company that I'd been working at, it was basically my job to launch crowdfunding campaigns for product companies. So I felt pretty, uh, pretty informed and I felt pretty solid about launching this crowdfunding campaign because I'd done it before uh, with other companies. So I could mine it. I could totally do it for myself. Uh, and I launched this crowdfunding campaign in May of 2016, and I ultimately raised $25,000 over two months, which um, for like crowdfunding experts, that's not a lot of money, um, but for me, it was, sure. <laughs> uh, and I was really satisfied. That was enough money. I met my goal. It was enough money to be able to order my first inventory load. Um, and get things going. And so that was really the launch of AntFlow. And then by November of 2016, we launched sales for our business to consumer side. So we were selling direct to consumer our 100% organic cotton menstrual products mm-hmm. uh, online. And so that was November 2016. At that point, I quit all my other jobs, like randomly doing this and that. And I just decided to start on flow full time, not paying myself, of course, but I saved enough money to be able to live a little bit longer and focus my full time on amp flow. Um, and at that point we were up and running kind of, uh, <laughs> and by we, I mean, of course, only me, I had no co-founder, I had no team. It was literally me. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I, I, a common thread I'm picking up on is that, uh, Breaking rules, uh, for example, hey, there's a ten dollar uh, fee for this thing. Okay, how can I get around that? I mean, I think that's a common trait, uh, at least that I've noticed among entrepreneurs, is maybe breaking the rules isn't isn't the best uh, term for it, but running through walls, figuring out other ways, uh, alternative strategies. Um, that that's that seems to be a common trait amongst entrepreneurs is just getting it done and overcoming obstacles that. Uh, that continually continuously appear, but but please please go on. Tell us more about uh, about the path. Yeah, so uh, November I launched sales, and first month was awesome. We had 100 monthly paying subscribers, and at the time the business model was people could purchase a box of 100% organic cotton tampons and pads, have it delivered to their door. 
for every box they purchased, we donated a box to a person in need in the United States Mm -hmm. um, because you may or may not know, but tampons and pads aren't covered by food stamps and they aren't covered by WIC. And of course, nobody talks about menstruation, so nobody donates these products to to, um, organizations that support menstruators in need. So we were really filling a gap on all sides. We were filling the gap of people not wanting to go to the store to buy their product, and then also people that could not afford product. Uh, And so at this point, we had 100 monthly paying subscribers. First month, awesome. And then... and then uh, I continued on and I went through some ups and downs with trying to find good people on my team. I really couldn't nail it down. I went through two different people that just like didn't have the grit that you need when you're starting a company. Um, and they were great people, just not great for entrepreneurship. They were mm. great for nine to five. That's it. <laughs> right. And entrepreneurship requires so much more. So um, I, I felt so incompetent when it came to hiring. So I tried to surround myself with smarter people that were really good at hiring. Uh, and I kept trucking along, trucking along. And then it came to, um, Q2 quarter two of 2017. And, and at this point, um, we, I had found a manufacturer for menstrual products. Um, I was getting menstrual products shipped to a storage unit uh, and just distributing product from a storage unit that I had. Um, and then I was supposed to receive around $25,000 worth of inventory that I had pre-ordered. And this was quarter two of 2017 mm-hmm. and it didn't come and it didn't come and it didn't come. And, you know, two weeks passed and I was about to send out our next monthly sh- um, subscription and the inventory still wasn't there. I had enough inventory to squeeze by for that month. And I I contact the manufacturer. I contact the people, no response. Mm. Like I was literally ghosted. (laughs) Um, And this is like $25,000. All I had raised was (laughs) $25,000 at this point. Right. Um, So there's like zero money in the bank. I don't have any inventory and I don't know what to do because nobody on the other end is responding. So I find like I search online, like, debtcollector.com or whatever, um, but it, nothing's working. <laughs> and at this point, it was almost time to send the next subscription box. So I had to send an email to all of our subscribers. At that point, we were close to 500 monthly paying subscribers, which was a pretty, a pretty decent amount considering we didn't have a marketing budget. And it was literally me running this entire company. And uh it was all off of $25,000 that I raised from a Kickstarter campaign. So um, I had to let 500 people know, you know, uh, we're not going to be able to ship this month. And I got so many nice emails back. They were like, thank you, Claire, for letting us know. We really support you. Thank you. Hmm. Oh, that's so kind. People care. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then it came to the next month where we still didn't have inventory. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I had to send the same email and people responded again, you know, Claire, we love you. Thank you for letting us know. <laughs> and then it comes to the third month where I still don't have inventory. Um, and I, I'm trying to like do everything I possibly can um, to fix this problem. But I, it, I just, there was no possible solution. They're like, still not getting back to you after three months? They're still not getting back to me. Wow. I still don't have inventory. Wow. <laughs> um, this is third, the third month now. And so I honestly started purchasing product off the shelves uh and repackaging it which is not great for anybody to hear that this is what was going on in the company but this is what happened i'm being very honest okay. <laughs> um and i just started repackaging product and putting it in the boxes and was like all right it's great it's 100 organic cotton which it still was i bought high quality products and repackaged them in our boxes but you know like what else do you do sure. um so that went on for about two to three months. And then at that point I had enough capital to be able to find a new manufacturer and just purchase from a new manufacturer. Meanwhile, we're still trying to like, (laughs) it's like a year later and we're still trying to get this $25,000 worth of inventory just to let you know. (laughs) Um, But um, so we're repackaging all this stuff, but then I finally got a new manufacturer started working with them. It was great. And at that point, um, we had been getting so many inquiries 
for businesses that wanted to align with our brand and align with our company um, and start stocking their bathrooms with freely accessible menstrual products. Mm -hmm. So I knew that I wanted to get into that business to business space. It was just a matter of inventory and how much could I warehouse and how much could I hold. So at this point, it was finally a time where I was able to support that business to business side because I had a new manufacturer, things were kind of in line and I was rolling at this point. Uh, which was really great. And so at that point, we finally started to adjust a little bit and add our business to business side. Mm -hmm. Got it. Got it. And wanted to talk a little bit about the marketing side of the business. You, you said you hadn't, you, you haven't invested a lot in marketing. Um, can you, I remember in our previous conversation, you talked about the relationships, how you leverage the relationships with your, your, nonprofit uh, partners. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I thought that was interesting. Yeah, definitely. So OntFlow is really unique uh, in a sense of we've been so scrappy. And I think <laughs> we're able to connect with consumers because of our scrappiness. Uh, and like I said, we've never spent a dime on marketing. It's all been either earned media, being featured in the press, but also I... When I founded OntFlow, I wanted to solve a variety of problems. And one of them was, of course, people living at or below the poverty line that don't have access to tampons and pads. And so when I started the company, I created strategic relationships with well-known nonprofits um, that we would donate menstrual products to. And so how we would work with these or nonprofits, would, we would say, hey, if you work with us, we'll start donating product to you, our tampon and pad product to you, in exchange for you sharing, um, you sharing your email list with us uh, of the people that support your organization, or you sharing about OntFlow on your social media. And we created this really collaborative win-win situation where the nonprofit was getting boatloads of tampons and pads. In our mm. first year of business, we donated over 100,000 tampons and pads to organizations in need across the United States. Um, but in exchange, we were getting access to so many socially conscious, socially minded individuals that were probably menstruating or knew somebody that was menstruating that ultimately ended up supporting our company. And so that, in a sense, became our marketing strategy which didn't cost anything, <laughs> uh, which was really convenient for us because we had no marketing budget. I, I love it. I mean, I think this is an excellent example of how being a purpose-driven company actually fuels profitability uh, and, 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 it create, and profitability allows you to further contribute to the purpose of what you're doing and uh, and it's something uh, I, I really believe in and it creates this flywheel effect, this virtuous circle. Um, and so I, I love that. Can, can you also tell me about uh, your viral marketing campaigns? Uh, some, some of your YouTube videos are uh, in incredible and uh, I, I'm just curious as to how you came up with some of those ideas. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually not sure how my brain works sometimes, but uh, <laughs> uh, yes. So I think one of the things that really captured a lot of audience members and a lot of interest for OnFlow specifically is our outrageous marketing campaigns. Mm. So OnFlow, when I started the company, I knew I wanted to change the conversation. I wanted to be able to freely talk about menstruation just like we're doing now, right. but also in a fun, exciting, and educational way. And that's a, that's a hefty goal because <laughs> it's really hard to talk about menstruation, whether it be in front of an investor or in front of another business owner or in front of you know your mom or your sister or your brother. So when, um, so when I think about marketing campaigns, I was always thinking about, okay, how can we make this accessible to everybody? And some of the things we started doing were YouTube videos. Mm. And one YouTube video in particular, we played Chubby Bunny with tampons. That's so, the one I'm thinking of, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I, and if you aren't familiar with Chubby Bunny, it's yeah. basically this concept where you put things in your mouth, and every time you put something in your mouth, you have to say Chubby Bunny. So I got one of my male friends um, to play Chubby Bunny with me with tampons. So essentially, we were putting a tampon in our mouth, saying chubby bunny, and going back and forth to see how many tampons we could fit in our mouth. 
Now, it, it's outrageous. It's kind of silly. It's the epitome of cotton mouth. But, <laughs> uh, but the, the best thing about it was is we could talk about our product line. So we could say, look, we're putting these in our mouth because they're 100% organic cotton. There's no synthetics, rayons, and dyes. There's no chlorine. <laughs> uh, so it really went in right into our pitch. One of our other um, viral campaigns that I'm probably the most proud of was a, a campaign that we did right in line with the Women's March. And this campaign was entitled Shed Walls, Don't Build Them. Mm. This was right after Donald Trump was elected president. And we're like, what are we going to do? Um, regardless of political affiliation, we were like, wow, we need to talk about this wall. Um, and as females, we shed walls <laughs> every month. Yep, so yep. what are we going to do? Uh, and so I coined the phrase, shed walls, don't build them. I commissioned an artist to make a beautiful design. And this design was on posters across the world during women's marches. Wow. Uh, which was so awesome. And we actually just had an author reach out to us um, to do a, uh, to write a book about shed walls don't build them because it was such a powerful campaign that meant so much to so many people. And there were people that were making their own signs that shed, said shed walls don't build them. Like we made more money off of the swag that said shed walls don't build them than our tampons. <laughs> <laughs> wow. um, but it was just such a remarkable campaign that really ignited the brand on flow and really established what we stood for because this campaign literally had a, a giant uh, image of an like of ovaries, yeah. um, which people typically don't look at, um, and it just said so much more than you know menstruation. It said so much more than that. So our marketing is we we don't pay for clicks, you know. We just do really awesome stuff, and then people share it organically. I I love it. I love it. I, I I'm I'm looking just online. I just googled it, and uh, there I'm seeing signs and T-shirts and. From all over the place, it sounds like something that that really caught on, and I and I can see why. Um, wow, that's pretty exciting. And tell me about Flowbro, uh, because a lot of the <laughs> in that uh, Chubby Bunny uh, one, and and there are a few others. There's there's Flowbro where you're. Uh, maybe you can explain that. Yeah, yeah. So um, I I think the only way to really make change is to include everyone in the conversation. Mm -hmm. Male female, white, black, everybody in between. Uh, and for so long, menstruation has only been a conversation for people that identify as women. And I didn't think that that was right because how can we make change if only half the population understands what menstruation is? So I tried to include um, our male counterparts with this fun term that we call, that we say is flow bro, um, which are guys that are totally fine with talking about menstruation, guys that carry around additional tampons and pads just in case uh, a woman starts her period and feels uncomfortable. And what's really awesome about flow bros are that they just like, glob on to the idea that they can be manly and also support menstruation, which I just love so much. And that's essentially what a flow bro is. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. That, that's helpful. Uh, I, I encourage people to check out some of the, the videos um, on, on your YouTube channel because they, they're quite, quite humorous. Uh, and when I, when I looked at one of your other videos, I think it's your, your main one, uh, you mentioned uh, the the vocabulary in terms of changing the way people think, changing the way people talk. Uh, menstrual products versus feminine hygiene products. You, you made a point in that video. Maybe you could just explain that and why why that's important. Yeah. So um, language is just so powerful. Mm -hmm. And given that I run a tampon and pad company, I was thinking about all of the problems in the menstrual product space. And one of them is the fact that we call tampons and pads feminine hygiene products. And if you think about like, what the hell is a feminine hygiene product? <laughs> like uh, in our video, I even say, you know, this could literally be a boob cleaner because that's feminine and it's hygiene. Like it has, right. there's really 
no description of what a feminine hygiene product is. And so the lack of clarity just continues on that situation of people not wanting to talk about it. And then in addition to that, uh, there are people that menstruate that don't identify as feminine. Uh, you can be right. butch, you can be a trans man that identifies as a man but still has a period. You're not feminine. Uh, so why do we have to call it feminine, <laughs> which is just so bizarre. So we're actually the first company that started using the terminology menstrual product and referring to people that menstruate as menstruators uh, rather than um, she, her, uh, in adding that additional pronoun. So right. we really try to maintain that inclusivity in all of what we do. It's so important. Um, one other thing I wanted to talk about is uh, there's a there's a deep discussion right now in the startup world about wanting to get more diversity uh, into both the startup world and the VC world. How have you found it um, as a woman, uh, as a female entrepreneur, uh, in first off being being on the entrepreneurship side and then also on the talking to investor side uh, in what's known as a, a male-dominated industry uh, and uh, paralleled by the fact that the product that you're selling is, is a menstrual product. How have you found that whole experience um, to date? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. So being a female entrepreneur is so beneficial in a lot of areas, uh, specifically in the media, um, because... Mm -hmm it's really easy to capture um, media attention to be a female entrepreneur because it's very uncommon. So more people want to write about it. Mm. Uh, and that really helps from a publicity standpoint. Um, and there's also funds that are specifically for women, right. which is definitely beneficial. There aren't funds specifically for men, but there are funds specifically for women. And so I'll be honest, as a female entrepreneur, I feel like I have it pretty easy <laughs> uh, because I have the media uh, pushing me forward. And then I also have access to all of these female funds. Now, that being said, I think that running a product company mm -hmm. is what is really problematic for a lot of investors. Mm -hmm. um, there are tons of, there, there are tons of funds um, and there are also tons of female funds, but they only fund tech, <laughs> right. um, which is, of course, troublesome because it inherently it inherently pushes out a lot of female entrepreneurs. And I think that that's the problem because women that are starting businesses, the majority of the time statistically are starting a product company mm. or are starting a lifestyle company, which is why a lot of people aren't getting venture com or venture. Uh, funding because we are product companies or a lifestyle company, which doesn't necessarily intrigue venture capital. But from a product company side, there are so many unique needs that a lot of VCs just don't want to deal with. <laughs> they don't want to deal with the inventory or the manufacturing or the warehousing and all of this other stuff. And at the same time, they do want to deal with, you know, companies that aren't generating revenue for three years until they break even, <laughs> which is so <laughs> funny. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, I think that that is really the the area where I see the um, the the most problematic uh, because there are definitely women funds and the media supports women, but running a product company is inherently different, and that is the problem for us when we search for funding is really finding uh, capital that understands these unique needs for a product company. Wow, so that's that's an intriguing observation that I, I hadn't picked up on <clears throat> the the correlation between women founders and product focused companies and 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 the mismatch with a lot of uh, male dominated more tech focused uh, investors. Uh, that's that's intriguing. Uh, another example that comes to mind is uh, there was a uh, there was there was a an interview that I, that I watched uh, for a woman who was also building a product company in the, in the uh, breast pumping space. And she mentioned that she had difficulty w meeting with investors because of the, the product, because the product was 
focused on, more on women, uh, or in her case, uh, on mostly on women, uh, and dealing with male investors that didn't take it seriously or didn't have any context, uh, and, and she had a lot of awkward meetings, um, be, just be, simply because of the type of product she was, uh, was inventing. Uh, have you had a similar experience or, or, or is it, or is it different in your case? You know, um, I don't know that we've pitched to enough VCs to be able to comment on that. Sure. Um, but I will say what's interesting is, so we do a lot of business to business sales and how that model works is we sell directly to businesses. Mm -hmm. So companies can offer product, our product for free in their bathrooms for employees and guests. Right. So it's a great employee benefit. Um, female employees really appreciate it. Uh, it overall helps culture. But typically the decision makers are male. They're either director of facilities, mm. sometimes they're HR, which is typically a female role. But we're typically talking to, you know, the president or director of facilities or director of operations, which, you know, are typically male roles. Right. And what I have seen, which is really interesting, is that, Men um, in these roles typically say, take my money and shut up, <laughs> in a sense. <laughs> like, I don't want to talk about it. Just take my money. <laughs> I don't care. Like, just do it. Um, but uh, so th that's one, one response. Or men are like, wow, I've never been given an opportunity to talk about menstruation. So, like, let me ask hmm. some questions, you know? Sure. Um, so awesome that – these uh, these men are getting excited about menstruation and talking about it and asking questions that even though they're married, they still don't know. Right. Um, so that's awesome. But we've actually seen the most pushback from older women. <laughs> hmm. um, so if there is an older woman in the role, um, and now this is actually statistically proven. We did a national study with freethetampons.com, and you can check it out. It's actually really intriguing that – women over the age of 50 do not agree that uh, menstrual products should be freely accessible in the workplace. Hmm. And there's a variety of suspicions as to why this is or hypotheses on why this is. It's what it could be, you know, women have been told that they have to carry around their product for so long that it's our responsibility. Um, that is one option or mm -hmm. one um, uh, reason. There's also, you know, like, well, I had to do it my whole life. She should too. Mm. Um, also, women have been told for so many years, don't talk about it. Don't talk about it. Don't talk about it. And so now that I'm bringing it up in a conversation, they're like, don't talk about it. Um, sure. So uh, we've actually seen more pushback from older women rather than uh, men, which is really unfortunate. Yeah. <laughs> Send the ladder back down, ladies. That, that surprises me. I, I mean, you think that, you think that even if there there was part of a person that said, "Well, I had to do it, you had to do it," you think they would they would kind of see beyond that and say, "Well, if I had these products available, that would while I was menstruating, that would have been amazing." Um, so I'm, that that is definitely a surprise. Um, and what what resonates with me more, and I don't know, I'm just hypothesizing is is more of this, well, we, we don't talk about these things. We don't want, it would be uncouth maybe to have these products around, um, more of an old school type of, of perspective. Uh, so I'm, I'm just guessing. But I'm also uh, intrigued by what you say about more, uh, interacting with the male facility managers. And I wonder how much it also has to do with, with your approach um, in that, when you talk about menstrual products, you do so very in a very upfront, uh, unapologetic manner um, that makes it, you kind of open the door to make it okay to talk about. Um, whereas uh, I feel like a, a different approach, maybe a more traditional approach that would be more bashful or you know, more, less direct might, might actually uh, turn people off. Have you, have you thought about that or is, is that just something you do? You know, we have definitely explored different ways of approaching the conversation. Um, and whatever we do, we always come with research. Um, mm. At the end of the day, the facility manager is always going to want to cut costs. 
Sure. But if we can prove to them why offering free menstrual products matters, uh, that's what we present. So, of course, we do play to the emotion of, yes, this is important, this should feel good, but we also have data to back everything up. So, for example, when we're selling to schools and institutions, uh, we point to the uh, case study that was done in New York City that actually, by offering free menstrual products, it boosted attendance by 2.4% among young girls over six months. That's pretty powerful wow. uh, because more <coughs> attendance means more de revenue, uh, which means more opportunity. Mm. Uh, and then when we're speaking to um, people that are focused in the tech area, we can say, look, by offering free menstrual products, that can actually boost your ratings on best places to work for women, which means that you can attract more female talent, which means that you can have more females that work for you. <laughs> um, so we, the conversation is very uh, open and we don't want to shy away from it because why should we shy away from it? Uh, but we also go into the conversation understanding who we're talking to. Um, so if we are talking to an older female, we adjust our conversation and our style versus if we are talking to a director of operations versus if we're talking directly to the president. But whatever we do, we always come in with an arsenal of information because at the end of the day, the feel-good factor will never pay. But <laughs> the facts and the statistics and all of the research that we've done does pay off and it does allow us to, you know, stock over 100 businesses across the United States now. Excellent. So, so what's next for, for Antflow? Yeah, uh, well, we're growing rapidly, which is exciting. Um, I've been expanding our team. Um, and really what's next is we're really focusing on that business to business side. So uh, right now we are capturing a variety of industry players. So we stock product at Brown, Stanford, Harvard. Uh, we stock product at Viacom and L Brands and a lot of large institutions across the United States. So we're really continuing to support large businesses and large universities and middle schools and high schools to take a step toward that menstrual movement and start offering free menstrual products. So we are really working towards helping people get educated on why it matters, and then, of course, directing them to our site so that they can purchase the product for their employees, guests, and students. So that is really what we're moving towards in 2018. Excellent. And there's a chance that there might be some angels and investors uh, listening. Uh, and so are you? where are you with your fundraising? Are you still raising, or, or is that coming down the pipe? Great question. Yeah, so we are raising. Um, we are in our seed round. So to date, we've done that $25,000 Kickstarter. We accepted $70,000 of angel investment. And now we're officially on to our seed round of a half a million dollars. So if there are any angels listening or VCs that are interested in Ant Flow, I'd love to get in touch. Excellent. I'm sure there are plenty out there. Well, excellent. Uh, just a few more questions on you. Uh, First off, what do you like to do for fun other than take over the world? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I am a certified Zumba instructor. So <laughs> I, I, am, I love dancing. I always am down for some salsa, bachata, reggaeton. Um, and that's what I do for fun. I teach fitness. Uh, I also love Macklemore. So mm. Catch me like jamming out to Macklemore or singing along at his concerts. If Macklemore is listening, I'm your favorite fangirl. I've seen you multiple times in concert. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I do for fun. <laughs> excellent, excellent. I'm 90% confident Macklemore will, will hear this. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> and what do you believe that, that others don't? This is my pet question that I, that I ask everybody. Uh, so what is your most unpopular opinion? Yeah, um, I have a lot of unpopular opinions. We could <laughs> do a whole new podcast on my unpopular opinions. <laughs> ranging from like, incest to religion to everything in between. Uh, but uh, w one that I am really passionate about, and um, I, I think that we should reframe the funeral. Mm. So right now... Um, 
in many religions and it for even people that don't believe in God or identify as atheist or agnostic, there's that constant question of like, wow, what happens after life, right? Mm. Um, and then when somebody dies, they finally have figured out what happens after life, but we're mourning, whereas they have they've gotten to that point where everybody wants to understand, right? So sure. at the end of one's life, they have lived, they have done what they wanted to do on earth, and it could be a celebration of life, which is actually pretty common in other cultures, um, particularly um, in Europe, a lot of European cultures, and also in uh, Mexico, there's a lot of celebration of life ceremonies, but not in the United States, which I find really interesting. You know, the average cost of the funeral is $13,000. Mm. And if you could just reframe that $13,000 and make it an amazing party, I think that that could just be so much better energy spent mm. rather than, you know, crying $13,000 away. Why don't we party $13,000 away? So... <laughs> My unpopular opinion is that we could reframe the funeral, turn it into a fun oral, uh, <laughs> celebrate life rather than, um, y you know, not celebrate life at the end of one's life. Sure, sure. I think the Irish have it figured out. They just drink all day, and um, I think that's that's somewhat in line. But uh, I, I I agree with you. I, I've always I've always thought for my funeral, I want people to be really happy, and I want to play Billy Joel's Only the Good Die Young. Um, that's uh, it's, it. the vision I've always had of my funeral. I guess the question would be, uh, it depends on when I die, whether or not that would be a good thing or a bad thing uh, in terms of being young or old. And, and the other thing just that I, I thought of was uh, my, my grandfather passed uh, this past year, lived a very long, wonderful life, and, uh, and we had a funeral for him. And uh, it was the very first funeral I'd been to that had an open casket. Uh, and I was, I was trepidatious about it. I was not looking forward to it. Um, I'd always thought that there was a big creep factor to that, uh, that type of uh, funeral. However, when I saw him, and I hadn't seen him in a long time, in, in a, a year or two, uh, when I saw him laying there, or his body laying there, it actually gave me this this great feeling, um, and it was actually quite a joyful experience mm -hmm. for me personally to to see him and be able to uh, you know, hold his hand, and uh, and it wasn't something I would have expected. Um, so I, I just thought of that when you when you when you mentioned that. Yeah, well, Joe, my next business is going to be a funeral company. Oh, cool. Uh, <laughs> Not to start planning your funeral already, but you sound like an ideal customer. So <laughs> I, I am. Sign me up. I'll, I'll be a beta beta customer. Uh, one last question for you: What piece of advice would you share for a young person, whether they're in college or in high school or in or, or out out of school, and they're thinking about starting a company? What piece of advice would you give them? Yeah. Um, so I always have two pieces of advice for this question comes up uh, decently frequently. Um, my first one is whenever in doubt, just Google it. Uh, people are always like, how the hell did you figure out your manufacturing? And of course, like, as you know, I didn't actually figure out manufacturing, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> all the other things, how'd you figure it out? And I honestly just Googled everything. Hmm. Um, so that's my first piece of advice. Uh, the second piece is, don't give yourself an excuse to fail. Mm -hmm. And for me, what that meant was I dropped out of college and a lot of people, you know, keep their part-time job or stay in college because if their business doesn't work out, at least they have a second option. Right. But that second option allows somebody to quit early. And if I quit at that early stage of Aunt Flo, where I really did want to quit, it, was, it would have been super easy to quit. If I would have quit then, I don't. I would not have what I have now. And so I think that really making sure that you eliminate that excuse to fail is crit critical because entrepreneurship can be so hard. And that uh, that uh, low hanging fruit of easily going back to college or going back to your full time job is just so tempting in the low times. But if you don't have that temptation, if you cut everything off then you'll be more likely to strive and move forward. 
Absolutely. That, and that brings us full circle to where we were early in the conversation about when you were at that critical juncture, how you turned the corner and made it work and, and decided for yourself you were not going to move back to Columbus or, or go back to college. Uh, the analogy I love is when warriors uh, knew they had to win at all costs, they would land their ships on the beach and then burn the ships. Because so there's, there's, no, there's no retreat possible. you got to burn the ships. Right. Uh, so where, uh, where can people find AntFlow? Where, where can people find you? What would you like to leave people with? Yeah, yeah. So um, you can find us on social media and on our website. It is goantflow.com. And then all of our social media handles are goantflow as well. Uh, so you can find us there. And if you send a message on Facebook or set through our website, contact forum, uh, I actually read all of them, <laughs> which I probably is not the best use of my time. But <laughs> I, I love, love, love connecting to my customers. Um, and I think that it's so valuable to hear what people think and what they're concerned with or what they don't like, but also what they love. Um, so if you send me a message through any of those forums, uh, I'll respond. Wow. First class service from AntFlow. Uh, <laughs> it, might, it might end at one point, so do uh, it. I'm sure, <laughs> for, for the time <laughs> being. Uh, Claire, just want to uh, say how thankful I am to you for, for doing this, this podcast. This has been a lot of fun for me, um, and I'm sure anyone who listens to this is going to have uh, enjoyed it as well. So thanks again, and uh, let's do it again in, in, uh, in uh, not too long. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Joe. All right. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Epic Human Podcast. Please remember to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever app you happen to be using. And if you want to keep up to date on the latest Epic Human Podcasts, follow us on Twitter, at Epic Human Pod, or you can follow me personally, at Joseph underscore Blair, or you can follow my Tumblr blog called Joe's Notes, at joeblairblog.tumblr.com. So thank you, thank you, thank you. See you soon.